Well, good morning and greetings in Jesus' name. Again, this morning I have uh, enjoyed our service so far. And what we want to do this morning is look at the prodigal son again today. So you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15, where we find that story. And we will be looking at the second character today, which is the loving father. So in the last sermon, we looked at the younger son who took his inheritance and the safety of his father's house and the accountability that went along with that and went to live a life of rebellion and self-indulgence. We look at the reality that the younger son followed the pattern that is so common in mankind. It's actually our original nature as men since the, uh, since the fall in the Garden of Eden. And that is that we see something, our tendency is to covet and to take that thing, and then disaster follows. And that's outlined clearly in James 1, 14 and 15, where it says, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Then... When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And so any person listening to the parable that Jesus told should have recognized themselves in the younger son. Actually, anyone that does not recognize themselves in the younger son will have difficulty appreciating or understanding or accepting today's message. Because there's a key part to experiencing repentance and confession and the Father's love itself, and that is seeing myself for what I am, the younger son. The one who wished that my father was dead or at least preferred to have his stuff over relationship with him. The one who took what was not rightfully mine. The one who intentionally withdrew from all accountability and responsibility and abandoned all of the structure and the culture that he had ever known to live in sin and self-indulgence. And it's only after the younger son really saw himself for who he was, wretched, miserable sinner, that he came to himself. What a beautiful part of the story, the turning point, really. He recognized that, that the lowest servant in his father's house is better off than he was. And he said, I will go to my father and I will tell him that I have sinned before heaven and before him. And I will, re- I will re- make a request not to be restored as a son, but rather to be a servant. So there is hope for anyone, even the worst sinner. Anyone can repent. And what happens when the worst sinner repents? We'll look at that more today. Now to set the stage for this part of the story, first of all, I want to want to just think through a bit what this younger son would have looked like coming to his father. Because I think sometimes we have an incorrect picture in our minds or incorrect perception in our minds of what the younger son looked like. Uh, I think that might even diminish our understanding of the father's love here in this story. And we may have in mind a picture that we see in storybooks um, of what the younger son looked like. Yes, his, t- his clothes might be torn a bit, but I don't think we get the full realistic picture of what he looked like. And so I want us to think about that in the following way. Just imagine with me for a moment. You're on a trip to an event out of state. Maybe it's a family, family re- reunion or something like that in Ohio, South Carolina, Indiana. You pick the state. Eight to ten hours away, let's say. It's 11 o'clock at night. You've been driving for some time, and the gas light blinks on. 
and you've been kind of pushing that off because you don't want to stop. Things are going well. You don't want to stop, but you know that you need to get gas here at some point. And you're having a hard time finding a decent gas station. Seems like you're in the middle of nowhere. I don't know if you've experienced that. And you finally tell the person beside you in the passenger seat, we're going to stop at the next exit, and we're going to get gas at whatever's there, no matter what it is. And sure enough, at the next exit, there is one gas station, some random off-brand gas station in the dumpy part of town. But your options are limited, and so you pull in and pull up to the pump. Now, it's very clear this is not an upper-class part of town. The pavement has large potholes, the free air station is falling over, and the parking curbs are disintegrating. The gas pump is clearly from the 90s, and you actually have to swipe your card the old-fashioned way to make it work, and the pump handle is sticky. The gas station itself is small, but it's well lit up, advertising alcohol and cigarettes and who knows what else. You really don't feel like going in to find the restroom, but you're not going to stop again, so in you go. The aisles are small, the merchandise is disorganized, and the floor is dirty, but you find the bathroom in the dinky, small, poorly lit back corner, and you prepare to enter only to see that it's closed off for cleaning. But a few minutes later, the cleaning lady comes out. She's dirty. Her hair is mangled and smudged up. She has the toilet brush in one hand and the cleaner in the other, but the toilet brush is not the long-handled kind, but rather a short handle, which means that her hands have been in contact with who knows what. Typically, you would expect a bathroom cleaning lady to wear gloves, but apparently this gas station can't afford that. She really does look a sight. Her eyes are bloodshot with drink, her arms are marked up with drugs, and her breath smells of cigarette smoke. You get the picture. Not a pleasant sight. Sleazy. Uncomfortable. And I believe in the story of the prodigal son... This is the picture of the young man coming back to his father. Think about it. He just spent the last who knows how long indulging himself in anything he wanted to indulge himself in. And his last job was feeding the pigs in their pen. Any reasonable man in his right mind would have turned away in utter disgust. The smell alone would be choking So I believe that at this point in the story, as Jesus is telling this parable, everyone is sitting at the edge of their seat. Now remember who all was listening. We have tax collectors and sinners, as well as scribes and Pharisees. So we really have the whole social structure from top to bottom listening. And they're all at the edge of their seats at this point. They don't know how the story ends like you and I do. And so they are all wondering How will the Father respond? But the Father's response is very unexpected. The Father runs, runs, mind you, toward his Son. Kind of makes a fool of himself to get to his Son as quickly as possible. I mean, I'm picturing the Father here to be 50 or 60 years old. 
And I'm not that age yet, but one thing I do know is that men that age don't generally run randomly for no reason. And the picture that Jesus paints here in this parable stirs two emotions within me. And I imagine it does within, it did within those who were listening as well. And I imagine it does within you also as you hear it. But first of all, I want to think a little bit about what the father was doing or was experiencing when his son was gone. There are several things that the father was not doing leading up to this time, and and perhaps this is the most remarkable. He was not going about his business as usual. He had not given up on his son. He was not sulking or angry or bitter with his son, even though his son had made a complete fool of his father and offended his family. On the contrary, there were several things that the father did, or he was doing, He was watching, even though he had no way of knowing when or even if his son would ever return in this story. And there's even an indication that he was looking very hard, very carefully, far down the road, because he saw his son while he was still a long way off. He was filled with compassion for his son. He ran to his son, the Bible says. He threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And so the two emotions that run through my mind this morning as I think about that are this. First of all, there's an absolute awe for the Father's love. Jesus' description of this reunion is beyond remarkable. The Father isn't pouting. He's grieving. He's missing his son. He's watching for him carefully every day. And when he spots him, just a small dot out there on the distant path on the horizon He takes off running toward him. Now the son, remember, had wronged and insulted his father in every way possible. And yet his father displays instant forgiveness and love. Now while there is this awe and amazement at the father's love, there's another emotion that comes to my mind as well. And that is dismay, disbelief, even indignation. And I'm guessing that was the primary emotion of the scribes and Pharisees as they listened to Jesus' story. You see, what the father did here is not what he should have done. He should not have come out with a hug. Everyone knows that it would have been proper, based on the law, to come out at him with stones. And we can read about that in Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 to 21. He should have taken his son to the elders, telling them, that his son is stubborn and rebellious, a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city should have come together and stoned him with stones to put away the evil so that all Israel would hear and fear. And so, as Jesus tells the story of the Father who represents the holy, perfect, almighty God embracing the filthy, smelly, dirty sinner, Something rises within the Pharisees, and something rises within me as well, because this is not right. God's holiness is at risk. Other men will commit the same sins if they see how the Father treated his son, and how do we know anyway if he's actually repentant? And even if he is repentant, we all know what happens when vile men 
comes in contact with a holy God. A couple of stories, I'm guessing, come to their mind. Remember one time when Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire to God, which he had commanded them not to do, or he had not commanded them to do. What happened to them? Fire went out from God and instantly devoured them. Or another time, when, during a time of great rejoicing, a time of celebration, and bringing the ark of God back, Uzzah put his hand on the ark to steady it so that it wouldn't fall when the oxen stumbled. What happened to Uzzah? He died instantly. And even the priests themselves, when entering the holy place, are very, very careful to do everything perfectly and properly because we all know what happens when vile man comes in contact with holy God. And so the Pharisees and scribes, I'm imagining, are listening intently for the wrath of the Father, the wrath that will restore the holiness of God and separate him from all sin and sinners. The wrath that only the Pharisees can fully escape because of the perfect life that they're living, or so they think. But the wrath never comes. In fact, the father is not angry at all. He embraces his son in love and forgiveness. And he goes farther than that. He goes beyond forgiveness. And he says, put the best robe on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. And let's prepare the best food that we have and celebrate. And so something here doesn't fit. It's not right. Something is wrong. And I think about Randy's devotional this morning when he talked about the perceived ridiculousness of man being holy as God is holy. It's not possible. How can we do that? Vile man cannot come in contact with a holy God and be forgiven and restored. This can't be particularly when there is no sacrifice. But I want to think a little bit more about Jesus' teaching and his life and explore more this idea of God's love. What other stories did Jesus tell that pointed to this? What about the parable of the religiously upright Pharisee who fasts twice a week and faithfully ties of everything, who is condemned while the wretched tax collector is justified? What about the immoral town woman who has her sins forgiven while the upright Pharisees do not? What about the notorious criminal who goes free while the innocent Son of God is crucified? What about the criminal on the cross who is told that today you will be with me in paradise even though he never did one thing for God. What about the statement that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth, that's it, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is it about these people that enabled them to receive God's love? Or could we say, what's the profile of the person who is open to God's love. I want to dig into that just a bit. And in order to do this, we, we need to look no farther than the story of the prodigal son. What is the profile of the person whose heart is open to receive God's love? It is the person who is at the end of his rope. 
It is the person who has come to himself. It is the person who admits wrongdoing. It is the person who would be happy to just be a servant in the kingdom of God, the person of lowest importance. But why was the wretched tax collector justified? He acknowledged his place before God as a sinner in need. Why was the thief on the cross ushered into paradise? He acknowledged his sin, and he acknowledged that he deserved the punishment that he was getting. He also acknowledged that Jesus was not deserving of that punishment. Why was the immoral town woman forgiven? She humbled herself before Jesus. According to John 3.16, who receives eternal life? Is he that believeth on Jesus And so with these examples, we have a sketch or a profile or a description of the person who accepts God's love. He is humble. He admits wrongdoing. He is willing to accept a low position in his father's household. He believes on Jesus. As you reflect, is that a description of you, of where you are this morning? But still, in their mind, the Pharisees are thinking, and we might say, does it not matter what our actions are? Is it okay to sin most of your life and then repent at the last moment? Isn't God required to take us back when we repent, no matter how bad we have been? So then do what you want and repent later. Do our actions matter? There are a number of verses that speak to this, but two passages in particular come to mind where this is addressed. Romans 6.1 says it this way, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And I believe the question, in the, the logic of that question goes something like this. If we sin more, it's even more opportunity for God to show off his amazing grace. And to this, Paul says, God forbid, by no means, Are you out of your mind? How can we who are dead to sin go on sinning? How can we continue to live in that? And then in verse 14, Paul goes on to say, we are not under the law, but under grace. Well, the next logical question for carnal man is this. The question is, shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace. And in my mind, the logic of that question goes something like this. If God has unlimited love, and unlimited grace, we can go on sinning, and God will forgive. And then I believe the crux of the matter there in verse 16 is this. We are actually the servants to the one to whom we are obeying, the one to whom we are giving our life, whether it's sin that leads to death or obedience that leads to righteousness. The second passage is found in 2 Corinthians 5. Turn with me there. I want to read a couple of verses that I think speak to this very, very, very well. Pinpoint this very well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to jump in at verse 14 and then read verse 15 as well. For the love of Christ constraineth us or compels us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live to themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Did you catch that? The love of Christ 
compels us not to continue sinning, but it compels us that we should not henceforth or we should no longer live for ourselves, but unto him which died and which rose again. But how does the love of God actually work in us? What does the love of God do in us? For this, uh, we'll do kind of a sword drill. So pull your Bibles out, and we're going to look at a couple of different passages in pretty quick succession here. Romans 5, 5 is the first passage that we'll start to. So turn there. Romans 5, 5 says this, And hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And the idea there is that the love of God is poured out in our hearts, poured out upon us. Next passage is Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians chapter 1. And I'd like to read verses 3 through 14. I think I'll just pick out a few verses here. Uh, Ephesians 1 verse 3 goes like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to, and here is the point, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the, in the beloved. So the love that we experience from God propels us forward to be to the praise of his glory. Turn with me then to Ephesians chapter 3, looking at verses 14 through 19. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And so in this passage, we see that the purpose, one of the purposes of God's love is to fill us with all of his fullness. Turn back now to Titus chapter 3, right after Timothy. Titus chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 3 through 8. For we ourselves also were sometimes, and what I want you to think about here is the difference between the person in verse 3 and the person in verse 8, I believe it is. The difference between the person in verse 3 and the person in verse 8 and how that person gets to that point. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to the mercy, according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that, being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, 
And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. And so what we see here is the love of God changes us from being disobedient. Look at verse 3. Looks kind of like the prodigal son. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various, all kinds of lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. It takes us from verse 3 to verse 8, where we are to maintain good works. Then 1 John chapter 3, I read verse 17. First John chapter 3, verse 17. I'm going to read this in the, in the NIV. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? And it's a rhetorical question. We know it, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. If you have the love of God in you, it pushes you, it compels you to be compassionate to others. And then First John chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. So here we see that the love of God reveals itself in our love for others. And of course, we can't talk about the love of God without looking at 1 John chapter 3. And I'll just read the first three verses there. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, or has lavished upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So in this passage, the love of God is lavished on us first. We become sons. And then as a result of that, we are changed in verse 2 to be like him. And then because of these two things in verse 3, we purify ourselves even as he is pure. And again, I think about Rainey's devotional, how do we purify ourselves even as he is pure? But I want to look at one more story that I believe illustrates God's love in a very real and pointed way. The story is told of a baby girl who was born to poor parents. The parents were so poor that they rejected their baby, despised her, and put her out in the field to die. Now, by chance, a young man walked by and heard the baby crying and walked over and saw her. 
There she was, in a puddle of birth fluids, barely clinging to life. The young man had pity on the baby and saved her life and found a place for her to live. <clears throat> her new parents were good to her, but poor, and could only provide her with the basic necessities of life. Now again, by chance, the young man who rescued her was a prince. When the baby that he had saved grew older, he loved her and took her to be his wife. Now she was treated like royalty. Her worn clothes were replaced with the finest clothes that money could buy. In addition, she was given necklaces, rings, costly bracelets, and jewelry, and a beautiful crown on her head. Her shoes were the best of the best. Her food was of the richest fare. Eventually, when the prince became king, she became queen of the land. She was very beautiful, the most beautiful of all the queens, and on account of that, she became very famous. But when she became beautiful and famous, she began to indulge in all kinds of lusts and immorality. She became a prostitute and built up idols. She forgot all that the king had done for her in saving her life, and she thought only of herself. She even sacrificed her children, those of royal descent, to the idols that she was serving. Her immoral indulgence got worse and worse until finally the king decided that he would give her over to the men that she was hanging out with and have them do with her as they wished. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. Between Lamentations and Daniel, <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 16, which is where this story is taken from. And let's see what happens next. I'm going to read uh, chap Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 59 through through 63. And I just want to clarify that this story is an, actually an allegory that, that was given where the prince and the king represents God and the unfaithful woman represents Jerusalem. I'm going to read chapter 16, verses 59 through 63 in the NIV, and it goes like this. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet... I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then... When I make atonement for you and all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. Notice verse 63. When I make atonement for you. I think the King, the King James says, when I'm pacified toward thee. But the idea there of the word pacified is to make atonement for and so when we look at the story of God, the story of Jesus, and the whole story of the Bible, one of the biggest questions of all time that I think man has to grapple with is this. If Jesus really is God, 
then what is God doing on a cross? See, the cross is the crossroads of human history. It is where God meets man face to face, not as his superior, but as it appears, his equal. God does something here that's incomprehensible and becomes his creation. He lives among his creation. Was there no other way for God to bring salvation? It has been said that when God created the world, he created with his words. When he formed man, he used his hands. But when God wrought salvation, he bared his holy arm. We can see that in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10. God rolled up his sleeves, so to speak. In other words, creation was easy for God. Creating man was an art project. But when salvation, in order for salvation to be accomplished, God rolled up his sleeves. But again, the question comes back loud and clear. What is God doing on a cross? What God is doing on a cross is he's making atonement for the unfaithful woman that in the story from Ezekiel chapter 16. He's making it possible for the father to run and hug the despicable sinner, the prodigal son, without inflicting an instant judgment. And so, as we look at the cross, suddenly all the stories about God restoring his people from the Old Testament and all the parables and stories about sinners being forgiven in the New Testament begin to make sense because outside of the cross, the story of the prodigal son is almost blasphemous. And so I think we can conclude today in the following way. A couple of conclusions. First of all, who is the one that is positioned and open to accepting God's love? Is the one who is humble, the one who admits his wrongdoing, the one who is willing to take the lowest position, and the one who believes in Christ, as it says in John 3.16. And by the way, that word believe is not just simply believing that something happened, but it means to have faith in, or put confidence in, or put trust in, or to commit to someone or something. So first of all, who is the one that can accept the love of God? Secondly, because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and only because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, can we make sense out of the story of the prodigal son? And I give, I give the scribes and Pharisees some space here if they were surprised at the ending of this story. Because the ending of the story makes no sense outside of the cross. The ending of the story can't be. The father and the son cannot come together like that outside of the sacrifice that Jesus made. And thirdly, the best part about God's love is this. It doesn't leave us in our sinful state. It doesn't say, well, you're fine. You're on your own now. You can do it. No, that's not how it works. God's love transforms everything it touches. The end purpose of God's love is to change us from vile humans into glorious followers of Christ into someone who can be holy before Almighty God. 
And do you know what else? Anyone who is humble can access this love free of charge. But what about the older brother in the story of the prodigal son? We will look at that the next time that uh, we look at this story. Kneel with me for, for prayer.